0: Welcome to the Courtside Culture Podcast, where we talk about using communication and the power of positive psychology to build a great team culture. Hello and welcome to the Courtside Culture Podcast. I'm Dave Grzynski, and today we're talking with Dr. Carissa Niehoff. She is the Executive Director of the National Federation of State High School Associations, The NFHS is the organization that writes the rules for competition for most high school sports and activities in the United States. Now, she's also served on the Education Committee of the United States Olympic Committee, served as the Executive Director of the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference. She's also been a successful teacher and a successful coach. And Dr. Dehoff. let me thank you for joining us here on the Courtside Culture Podcast.
1: Well, good morning, Dave. It's my pleasure to uh, be with you all today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: So I've been following you for a long time. It started when I was coaching my kids' teams. I was always looking for advice, and I can't remember when I signed up, but I signed up and started getting your emails from the National Federation of state high school associations, I just love the topics. I love the back, you know, the background you provided. You know, and it was one of your most recent emails on sportsmanship that compelled me to reach out to you. Now we're going to get into all of that in just a minute. But Dr. Niehoff, my first question for you is, how did you turn a teaching career and a coaching career <laughs> into what you're doing today?
1: Oh my goodness. Um... Well, I I think a combination of a couple of things, wonderful opportunities and wonderful people. Um, You know, I always wanted to be a teacher and a coach because my role models were my teachers and coaches and certainly my family. And you know, I was just blessed with opportunities to go ahead and and try my abilities at athletics and such and was a successful high school athlete and then went on to play Division One field hockey in college and just knew I was headed for a teaching, coaching career because of all that sport can do for anyone, whether you're D1 in college or not. Um, but you know, it's a lifelong um, ecosystem, if you will, for everybody. So I wanted to be an influencer there and and got into teaching and coaching. Um, I was a PE Health Latin teacher and coached a number of varsity sports. and. Uh, Then started to pursue subsequent degrees and um, became an athletic director and department chair and then middle school assistant principal, high school principal uh, for a number of years. And I was working with the U.S. Olympic Committee at the time. Now of course it's USOPC, Paralympic as well. Um, Doing a lot of work with them and uh, so I had my connections at a national level and with national governing bodies. And and then the state job in Connecticut as executive director um, presented itself and did that for eight years and did a lot with the NFHS on various committees. Um, throughout the eight years I was in Connecticut and then uh, was on the board of directors. I was actually slated to be president of the board when the national opportunity to be CEO opened up. And I was just blessed, fortunate to uh, secure that opportunity four years ago. So, been in Indianapolis, and this is the end of my fourth year already. And um, just thoroughly enjoy the work. But really, it's um, it, along the way. It was just tremendous people, tremendous influencers, and uh, lots of wonderful opportunities that I would say to anybody: just keep saying yes, working hard, and saying yes, and uh, great things can happen.
0: Well, see, that's what I love about your background because you have coached and been in, you know, been involved on so many different levels. And and here on the podcast, we talk a lot about building cultures and, and building good cultures. And you know, and, and we will. I want to talk about the relationship between sportsmanship and, and culture. But to you, like, what what is a good culture to you uh, when it? When I mean, we can say middle school athletics, high school athletics, even in the college. What what do you deem? is a good culture
1: well i think um, first of all without a good culture you're not going to have success anywhere and you're you're headed for failure um a good culture no matter what level is one in which all i'll call them shareholders be they the athletes be they the coaches the administrators the fans anybody involved um feels that it's a valuable experience they're growing from it it's positive and, and even when you get into something like heated competition, the energy needs to be on the right side of that fine line where um, there's you know, uh, really hard play, there's high level competitive energy, um, it's intense, it's, it's emotional, but it's on the right side of that line where out of it, everyone's self-efficacy comes through whole. So that, you know, we often say you, you, you win humbly and you lose gracefully. Um, and I think we water that down a lot. and We water down the word sportsmanship and the significance of it. But my goodness, sportsmanship, gamesmanship, leadership, all of the ships um, have got to be done in a healthy way. Um, and when there's one breakdown, one sort of leak in, in that system, Um, you know it just leads to an erosion of what the experience should be so good culture is really grounded in um, the value the meaningful experience for all and the positive experience for all and we're all responsible for that
0: well and that's one of the things that I I like to talk about on the podcast I call it the PPC and and I always say if you're a fan of the office that's the party planning committee there you go but (laughs) but here the PPC as parents, players, and coaches, and and how closely related everybody is when it comes to building that culture. To your point, and in the the thing you know, you mentioned it. All the ships and and sportsmanship is a big part of it, and it's not just you know, it's not just the the players on on the floor. It's it's everybody. It's the fans in the stands. It's the parents. You know. It's it's the coaches. It's the assistant coaches. I mean, down to. I mean, anybody. I mean, even I, I've seen. You know, you see all kinds of people throwing out of gyms. And and your email was. I mean, you said. And let's start here. You said it is time for a wake up call when it comes to sportsmanship. Can you explain what you meant by that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um- As I mentioned, we've been talking about the significance of sportsmanship for decades, you know, really since the start of competitive sport, Um, and uh, and we talk about, I mean, we have research that shows the impact of positive versus negative behavior. We have court cases. We have physical assault continuing to happen on officials, on players, in the stands between fans, Um, and, and it's just, it's destructive. We have now an official shortage in the United States across sports that pre-pandemic was a critical mass issue. We've lost almost 50,000 officials in high school sports over the last three years. And the number one reason the officials say they're leaving the profession is because of sportsmanship and fan behavior. Um, That's just one of the metrics that we're watching. Um, that's really, really pinned the needle on concern here. Most importantly, we're seeing that young people engage in sport and the Aspen Institute data, which is, is very respectable, um, shows that 70% will drop off by the age of 13. Why? It's not fun. And why do they, Why is it not fun? It's because they feel pressure, they, they don't like the level of competition and expectation, and sportsmanship is is an issue for them. And these are young people. Um, it, it's just it's very disturbing and, and it's just heartbreaking to see the poor behavior, the loss of perspective that uh, any of the shareholders might have when it comes to the purpose of sport. And when we talk about high school sports, that's our NFHS ecosystem, scholastic really because it's middle school as well. Um, when we for, when we lose the perspective, that high school and middle school sports is about growth and development and not winning and losing, that loss of perspective immediately translates into destructive behavior in many cases. And unfortunately, that plays out in the media and it gets a lot of attention and it's it's a poor example. So um, we cannot continue to have coaches and fans that are, and even the athletes, that are role models for all to see behaving badly and, and abusing one another. It just is a black eye on sports. It's, a, it's, it's undermining all of the good behavior that's happening out there and the great stories that are happening out there. And we've gotta, we've gotta stop this horrible sportsmanship we, or, or we're not gonna have sports. Um, we're not gonna have officials, we're not gonna have contests, and we're gonna lose kids. We're gonna lose all that uh, sport is in terms of what it offers. So uh, I, am, you know, we are jumping up and down about this thing, Dave. We have got to work together collaboratively. And and I can't thank you enough for bringing this front and center in your own efforts. Um, But we've got to make, we've got to change. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons, you know, I started doing this podcast is
0: because I I feel like there is a need. I mean, like I said, I, I coached, I coached my kids, but I played too. I played in high school. Now, this was, you know, back in the back in the 80s and I'm curious to to hear your your answer to this question because I wonder if if, as an athlete yourself and you played on the division one level I played football basketball and baseball in high school Uh, I played baseball division three in college and so but do you remember seeing like this shift to this bad sportsmanship because I think back as you were talking I'm sitting here thinking back like, like I don't ever remember seeing a parent thrown out of a game, you know, while I was playing or, you know, I, or, you know, or, or the, the things that happened today. I mean, I was, I was calling games last year, doing play by play. And I saw a, a, a guy from, from the opposing team, but like the police came in and dragged him out of the gym. I, over the summer, I'm at a, at a summer league game, my son's summer league game. Oh my god! I'm just sitting there watching. There's like Eric Ryle, right, you know, riding the refs. I'm like this is a this is a scrimmage yes this is a summer league scrimmage what are you doing like he is all over the refs from the stands and and so you know i'm just wondering did did you experience anything like that when you when you were playing because i have to say i you know i'm a lot older so i don't remember everything anymore but but i don't ever remember experiencing anything like that and and did you and if you know and, and and the other question is did you see this shift, or do you remember when you saw this shift to bad sportsmanship?
1: Yeah, that, that isn't that a great question. Um, you know, and we we hear this you know answer today from kids. They don't may not notice it as much when they're actually in the heat of competition, but then when they're sitting in the stands watching, it's like wow, I don't remember it being like this at all. Now I played high school. And I'll just say it. I'm 56. Graduated in '83 from high school and then went on to play mid-80s in college. Um, I remember occasional bad examples of sportsmanship, but I also remember that parents sort of worked together and policed one another in the stands. Um, I never remember seeing a high school parent get thrown out of the gym as when I was a player. I do remember some of the teams we played, and this was North Shore, Massachusetts, north of Boston. So some of the, there were some tougher environments, um, where it might have been a little more noticeable, but not like this. I also remember the era where we respected the athletic director. We respected the coach. We were told by our coaches to respect the officials. The coaches respected the officials more. And, you know, I remember at the D1 level, um, you know, my coaches, they might get into it with an official. They knew each other, and they might, you know, gripe about a bad call, but there wasn't profanity. And there, there was emotion. There wasn't profanity. And then, if they needed to talk about it, they did. But um, the 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 fans in the stands behaved better. We treated our competitors with respect. Um, there was a little bit of it, but not like this. And certainly not the level of exposure. You know, now it's all over social media, and it. I think there's a, a real negative aspect of that when. It almost um, advances, you know, like, go ahead and do this. This is what people are doing, and it's okay. Um, it's not okay. So it's changed. The point at which I, I think, and, and I have this is not a research-based answer at all, my own feeling is that when we started to see the rapid rise of club sport at the youth level, which may or may not have any kind of educational preparation for those coaches, they might be parents, they might be, Anybody off the street that wants to coach a youth team. Um, you know, I'll say the sport of basketball, we saw AAU programs growing quickly. Now it's volleyball where we've got youth leagues. And shoot, in Indianapolis, we had we have big volleyball tournaments here. I went over to our convention center for another reason. I saw two dads duking it out in the hallway, and this was an eight-year-old league. Um, it, it's, it's just when it's become a little bit of the Wild West out there, without the accountability measures in place, without the coaching education, without the sportsmanship expectations, and really not, not enough hands on deck to make sure that people do behave badly or they're tossed out. Um, I think the rise of club and pay for play programs at the youth level started to, um, started to spark the increase in bad behavior, which then carries through the high school ranks and obviously uh, on into the collegiate. So that's my answer to that, Dave. I don't know if it's, you know, folks agree or not, but from where I sit at a national level, I think that's where it starts.
0: I I 100% agree with you because one of the things that, you know, I always, when when you talk about, when you talk to people that I, you know, that I played with, like, it was not like this when we played, You, you played football, you played basketball you played baseball and then over the summer you you play summer baseball if you played baseball you know and yeah. you know, or the other kids they just you know they were lifting for football and football started around august or whatever you know and now the like like I, I, I don't know i don't know if it makes the competition better or what but what the other shift that that makes me nuts is the specialization now oh, where yeah. we're telling kids who are in grade school You know you have coaches you know who are who are essentially and i will tell you i personally went through this with one of my kids you know who who are you know you, you feel like you're getting grief you're 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 made to feel guilty when when you say hey you know my, my, my son's pitching today. You know, he doesn't want to lift for basketball. Is that okay? You know? And, and the answer is really, uh, no, it's not. Okay. Yeah. I'm like he, yeah. he needs to decide what does he want to do? And I'm like, no, no, he doesn't need to decide. You know, and I'm just, you know, and I've seen this with, with, with lots of other kids too, you know? Um, and I always hear coaches saying, we love multi-sport athletes, you know? And so the money tied up into different things and, and the, you know, the specialization, I think, is is partly, you know, and, and again, it's it's tied back to the club
1: sports. You know, I think that that's part of this too, fueling this. What do you think? Absolutely, absolutely. The specialization is, um, we are almost at campaign level energy around this messaging. We have got to encourage multi-sport participation. Number one, it's better for the body. Number two, it's better for the mind. And, and it's much more in line with what you described. We played three sports and I absolutely remember that cycle. You know, in the summer, the football folks are in the weight room, they're lifting. You know, we have our preseason and then we went on to play basketball in the winter, do what we did in the winter, and then we went on to our spring sport. And we had much more healthy interactions. Our bodies were healthier. And uh, we, we grew more. Um, we also had a chance to make teams in high school. So um, now, my goodness, we, we see even small to medium-sized high schools where if unless you've played a sport year round, you have little to no chance of making that varsity team for sure, sometimes even if they still have a freshman team, you're challenged there. We've got, in Indiana, we've got a high school that's 5,500 kids. That's insane, and those kids, um, they don't have a chance of making that middle school team, unless you look at a sport like football or track. Um, those, or maybe swimming. Those are sort of the last three where you might have a chance to find a space, whether you're competitive or not, but you can join a team. Um, but the other teams, basketball, soccer, um, tennis, golf, um, all of those where you, you, you're encouraged volleyball, you're encouraged to play year round. Um, chances are slim to none that you'll make the high school team. And that's where the kids are burning out at that young age. Um, the few that, that power through and become you know, elite level athletes you know, are, are maybe going to make their team. We're hearing from high school coaches that in many of these sports um, there's a competitive mindset as opposed to a developmental mindset even in the players. The kids come in, they've been just playing, playing, playing game, 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 they're tired, they're thinking about just competitive, they're they're not demonstrating the fundamental aspects of the skills needed to play a good game, Um, and and coaches are having to, you know, they're they're expressing some frustration about that. The other really interesting element to the club model, and I don't know if you felt this as a parent, um, but we have done research with moms and other parents who have said when their kids engage early on, their peer group becomes the other parents and if their child doesn't continue to make those travel clubs and things like that, they lose peer groups. So there's an element to the parent community around club sports as well that we need to pay attention to. Um, One last story here, I apologize, but I was driving by one of our uh, high school fields a couple of weekends ago and the Youth Lacrosse League was practicing and I'm I'm tooling on by and I look out and there's actually a pop-up tent parents were tailgating and these and grills and all sorts of things and these kids are eight years old. Um, now there could be really healthy relationships <laughs> developing there or there can be a, a culture that may end up um, not being healthy, who knows. But there's a lot to this club thing, specialization. Um, it's a culture and we really need to pay attention to this.
0: So one of the things you said that... that I, well, I, I I agree with you on the on the parent peer groups and I want to ask you about that Butler study that you're involved with with the moms yeah. in, a, in a little bit. But the, I'm, I'm t- Dr. Nehoff, I can go days with you <laughs> yeah. Let me just tell you because I have so many questions for you, but we're going to try to keep this to 40 or 45 minutes. Sure. But, but the, the competitive nature that you mentioned, here's, here's another thing that, and again, okay, like, like you, mean, this is not study based. This is Dave based. This is just my observation. What I think is happening, not just with, with kids that, that, I've coached or, or, you know, my kids have played with, you know, these are kids I've, I see at other schools, you know, from parents that I know people that I went to school with, you know, I've been kind of paying attention to this where everything now has become, you know, you everything is like a skills competition, you know, mm-hmm. where you have to go. And if you're a baseball player, you really experience it in baseball. Cause if you're not, you know, you, you have to go and throw 85 or 90 miles an hour or nobody cares about you. You know, that's what my son will tell you. Um, you know, in football, you go to these camps. You have to ball out at these camps. You got to, you know, you know. And and what I'm seeing is this: not only the burnout. I 100 percent agree because I'm seeing some very good athletes, some some very good players in particular sports. Just just hanging it up. They're going to college, don't, yeah. which is great. But they're just like I'm done playing. I'm like I'm just, I'm, you know. And they're and they're good. They could definitely. And some of them I think could probably play Division One, yeah. but they're done. Yeah. But the other thing that that I think the competitive side of this is doing and these skills competitions and you know and and the the clubs and and all of this that whole competitive drive i think what it's doing is this you're seeing kids say well heck if i'm not going to play division one i'm just not going to play at all why would i waste my time yeah and i think that is such a bad attitude
1: can i get your thoughts on that oh i absolutely agree absolutely agree and it's not an attitude that they develop all by themselves. Um, you know, it's the it's the culture around uh, them. It's the messaging that they're getting. It's um, you know, and it starts to become the the self talk. Um, you know, and that if it, the only ones that matter are the D1, that's what they see. You know, in their in their in their media channels and and that's the name image likeness kind of community that's developing now and culture that's developing and and they they completely miss that there's a really healthy opportunity at the d2 and three levels and there's nothing wrong with that in fact um we're seeing at the ncaa level a lot of transfers now um and there's a whole you know energy around the transfer portal and after covid we have a lot of you know an, an additional year players and all of that but a lot of kids are transferring down to, to D2 and 3 so they can play. Um, and, and there's such value in those experiences, being a student athlete. Um, so we need to restore that messaging and, and really make sure that um, it, the young person who's fairly talented in high school and wants to continue. Is invited to go to the right place and isn't confused by D1 or done. Um, and we also have to, you know, be aware that high school kids have a lot of opportunities to do a lot of things: um, jobs, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, relationships, um, other uh, sporting opportunities, um, all sorts of things that are in front of them and if if the pressure to play d1 is strong enough they're just going to say well i have i have 10 other things over here that i can use my time for um and and we might be missing something that's would be a wonderful piece of their life um so absolutely the d1 or done message uh has to get corrected and has to get corrected quickly
0: do I even throw JUCO in there, NAIA. I mean, there are so many yeah. opportunities. You know, student athlete, is student athlete. You know, I mean, like I said, I played D three, loved it. You know, yeah. and I just, I just, I just don't understand how. You know, again, we we've made that shift. So now, one of the, the the things in the email that stood out to me is on sportsmanship. The email on sportsmanship is you're you basically you know you're you're calling out coaches here because you say like if the coaches act in a sportsman like manner. Their behavior sets the tone for players, spectators, and others. Yes. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. (laughs) Um, Absolutely, I think that's where it starts. And the coach's behavior uh, needs to be both internal and external. So every little nuance of body language reflects what they're thinking. It's fine to be intense. It's fine to raise the tone of your voice and the volume of your voice when coaching. There's a lot of noise in the gym and you know what? And, and, and it's intense and volume of voice, great. Um, make it positive, choose the words carefully, encourage the kids, talk about the mechanics of the game. Whatever you are doing, you are coaching. Coach with intensity, that's fabulous. But the other pieces that I would say are external are um, sort of making sure you've got an ear on the the fans behind you and um, your behavior with officials. Um, If if the coach sets that strong model, that we can be intense, but let's cheer positively. And you know we're not riding officials here. Uh, We we absolutely cannot do that. It's not. They don't come to, you know, as I say in the article, you know, they, our, our officials director, Dana Pappas, you know, they don't leave their jobs to basically volunteer their time so that they get berated. Officials do this to give back to the game. Um, and, and officiating is difficult. Um, I think coaches need to model their behavior with their kids. They need to model their behavior in terms of how they um, actually coach the game. How they motivate, um, and also how they interact with player uh, parents and fans, and that's not just during the game. It's outside of the game when they have those preseason meetings, when they have the before and after time interacting with fans coming or going from the game. If they, um, you know, some of them do open practices sometimes, um, depending on their relationship with the parents. But um, it's it's a twenty four seven model. Um, that we have to have. Um, how do coaches talk about their, their teams, their programs, post-game interviews with media? Every single element of a coach's life how has to be a positive role model, front and center. Parents will then know that there are parameters, there are expectations that they have to meet. And they have to behave within those parameters and they have to be positive. So I think it starts with the coach I think then from the coaching staff across sports within an athletic program of a school, the athletic director and the administrators in the school need to then protect that layer. That these are the expectations for our coaches and fans in all sports. And we're not going to let one or two high profile coaches get away with anything just because they might be successful. Um, and I've seen that far too much. where. Um, you know, in my home state of Connecticut and and across the board nationally. Certain coaches have political followings and maybe they're successful and they're allowed to behave badly. Um, They're not uh, admonished, they're not uh, wrist tapped or corrected and they're not fired. Um, So we really have to be more clear, more consistent and um, a little more black and white with what we expect in terms of sportsmanship and the coaches front and center. Is there a coach, and
0: I mean, I, and I'm trying not to put you on the spot. So if you don't want to name names, that's fine. But is there a coach that maybe you played for or that you watch today that's out there coaching, whether it's on a high school level, college level, wherever, that you that you watch this person and you say, man, they are doing it right. They they are just every they check every box when it comes to culture, sports, sportsmanship, and the rest of it. Is there a coach? that you have in mind when you're saying this is where we need to get
1: to you know fortunately my own playing experience every single one of my coaches high school and college um, were just outstanding in that regard Um, in high school uh, my track coach who um, is deceased at this point um, Susan Redfield was phenomenal. My basketball coach, Mike Thibodeau in high school, and this is all Marblehead, Mass. My field hockey coach, Cindy Neal, Cindy Neal, Linda Rice Collins, who's still there. Um, they were just, um, prime examples of sportsmanship in college, Pam Hickson, my coach at UMass, uh, Wendy Anderson at Brown. Um, they were just tremendous examples of great sports, sportsmen and women. Um, and that made a difference in how we played and how our fans behaved. Um, front and center. Uh, they were outstanding. I think we all probably can, you know, name coaches that we see, you know, up to the minute right now in the collegiate level and the high school level, and they're not good examples of sportsmanship. Um, they are from successful programs primarily, and it's, it's just, it's not good behavior, I You know, there are high profile basketball coaches at the collegiate level that um, if you've ever sat behind them, on the bench. I don't know if you could count the number of profane words that come out of their mouths and and they're allowed to do it. Um, <clears throat> that's just you know we've, we've got to rein that in um, because kids watch these games. Kids, kids are there. They're listening. Um, it's, it's just inappropriate. Unnecessary. It does nothing for the game. Um, so those are the kinds of things that you know that without question when you play for a good sportsmanship uh, program, you feel good, you can play well, you can have tough games, tough wins, tough losses, hard moments, but in the end, when, when it's respectful, um, I think everyone comes away uh, with a different feeling than when it's disrespectful. Nobody feels good um, when um, there's disrespect out there on the part of anybody. It doesn't sound good, it doesn't look good, it doesn't taste good, it doesn't feel good, and again, it does nothing for the situation at hand or the outcome of the game. If anything, it might detract from the outcome of the game. Um, and that's what we all need to embrace and realize.
0: What advice would you give a coach? I mean, it could be any. I mean, any sport. Um, to to kind of to change this. Like, where where would you recommend? if a coach is maybe, maybe they're listening to you and, and they're saying, man, you know what? I, I I need to change some things, you know, because I don't think we're, you know, we're, we're not the best example of ourselves right now. And I think we need to change some things. Where w- would you suggest coaches start if they want to try to flip the script on their culture, whether it be, you know, the sportsmanship related or not, but I, you know, I'm talking like culture in general, where would you, where would you
1: tell a coach to start? if they're trying to rebuild their program and rebuild their culture? That's a great great question. I think a couple things need to happen. Um, There needs to be some private conversation with self, first of all, and there needs to be a real honest willingness to to look at one's own behavior. Where are they at? How do they coach? What do they say? Do they motivate or demotivate their players? So that self-talk, that self-awareness about how they are and then setting some goals for themselves, how to change, and really committing to change in self. Then I think, so that's the private change that needs to happen internally. Then there's the public change. And that part of the private, by the way, is also uh, being willing to educate themselves about the impact of their words. Um, Our young people, our players, have what I call private and public victories. Private victories are those moments when maybe something small happens and for them it's a victory in their own mind. When they look in the mirror, when they, something, something goes well and it could be little and it was something that just felt good for them. Private victory. Public victory is something that's easy. There's a win, there's a score, there's a trophy, there's something like that. That's very public. Um, but the private victories for kids are the ones most influenced by coaches. And coaches need to learn that they get into kids' heads. So what is the presence they want to have in their players' minds and hearts? Um, Their words become their kids' words. And we have to be careful about that. So part of that coach's work internally is to remember their words translate, and their words have impact emotionally. When we look at mental wellness right now in our young people, We've got a crisis on our hands in sport, and we need to remember that the coach has uh, such an impactful role to play on the mental well-being of our student athletes. So, publicly then, they need to talk about sportsmanship. They need to sit their parents down and their players and work together to say these are the expectations that we are collectively developing as a program. Get the kids involved in that. Get the parents involved in that so they've got skin in the game and they can say, I had a voice in these expectations. I've got to hold myself accountable. These expectations weren't just imposed on me and like rules. Um, I actually had a role to play in developing and agreeing through my signature and my covet um, that I will uphold these expectations and these behaviors. So privately work to do internally, some learning to do, publicly talking with the kids, develop, developing these agreements with the fans and then being very consistent in how they are upheld. So I would say for coaches do both of those bodies of work at the same time. And um, I think it's going to lead to a pretty immediate culture change.
0: What what intrigues me the most about what you just said is how you can't have one without the other. You started talking about coaches, but every every member of the ppc was mentioned you talked about players you talked about parents you talked about the coaches and and it goes to you know what i believe it it takes to i i, I just 100 I percent agree with you dr niob you know that it takes everybody right it takes the village to yes. to create that culture so now before we wrap up you know, I want you to talk about the Butler University study that you're doing, because I think this is very interesting. You're studying the value of high school sports and activity programs, but it's not, you're not talking to the players, you're not talking to the coaches, you're getting it from the perspective of students' mothers. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that study?
1: Oh, yes. Um, thank you, Dave. Uh, we are in the third year of a study on mothers of high school student athletes and looking at their perspective about the value of participation from a role strain versus role enhancement um, perspective. And we're asking lots of questions of these moms. Um, Their role as a mother, is it enhanced or is it strained by their child's participation in high school sports? The questions get into their perspective on their child's well-being, their child's schedule, their child's growth, um, in terms of their own self-efficacy, their own commitment to academic pursuits. Does does their schedule become more productive when it's structured by sport? Is it more strained because there there are expectations to participate in sport? So how are their child's lives influenced? What are their child's experiences? Are their own relationships with other parents enhanced? And is their own role as a mom better or worse because of now their child's investment in high school sports? So it's fairly complex and obviously Butler University University is just a tremendous institution so the folks leading the study are bringing in other bodies of research on mothers um, but looking at how high school sports are perceived are actually lived and um, are actually impacting mothers lives and their children's lives and it's fascinating um, because we're hearing both sides of it healthy sport programs where mothers report uh, very well-educated coaches, programs aligned with the mission, vision, values of the school, programs that focused on development, education-based programs, and programs where coaches are communicative with parents are the ones that lead to healthier experiences for moms. It's the programs where the moms don't receive communication they sense frustration in their young person, they report uh, uh, more negative coaching behaviors uh, where they get frustrated. Uh, Cost is even an issue. Um, Where parents feel that they don't have the resources to support their child, they report role strain. So we need to pay attention to that as schools. Are we making our programs accessible to kids, welcoming to kids, and, um, and doable? for moms that might have multiple kids who are in multiple programs. We have to pay attention to that too. But really it's it's focused on their child's uh, sense of self-efficacy first. If their child's happy, mom's probably happy. If the child's not happy, mom's not happy. And um, where the mom observes a healthy program, the moms are happy. Um, so it directly relates to sportsmanship. Um, so we're in a 10-year study, so seven more years to go. And as we, you know, mine these interviews and um, really look at um, disaggregating and reaggregating data, uh, we're gonna get a real solid picture of mom's perceptions over time.
0: It sounds like you've, you've learned a lot
1: already. And, and if people want to,
0: I don't know, maybe they can get involved in the study or just take advantage of some of the other resources you have on the NFHS website, or thing, how can they get a hold, what's the easiest way to get involved?
1: Yeah, so nfhs.org is our website. We also have an online learning platform, the NFHS Learning Center, which offers almost 90 different courses, some of which are for parents. Um, specifically, we even have a parent certificate if they take take three of these really uh, brief online courses that focus on the role of parents and sportsmanship and such um, If they're interested in learning more about the study itself um, They can contact me directly and my email is k niehoff n-i-e-h-o-f-f at NFHs.org org um, uh, And if they just you know email me I can connect them to Butler um, or they can also uh, look to contacting the study directly through Butler, probably easier through us. But um, we just have a lot of resources on our website and especially on NFHSlearn.com. Um, and anything can be Googled and immediately links are accessible. And uh, the great majority of our courses, by the way, are free. They go into mental wellness, they go into sportsmanship, uh, they go into coaching, various sports, of course, but it, They go into risk minimization, um, cardiac issues, concussion, heat illness, um, all sorts of health and safety courses. Um, So a lot to offer there, a lot of links to our articles and the NFHS voice which you've been referencing which is a weekly, um, it's a weekly uh, broad uh, article I'll call it that we do and they can get that for free. Um, They can subscribe. Lots of ways to connect with us and our information. And if they email me, I'm happy to help.
0: Yeah, and you even, because it's not just sports sometimes in in the emails, like I I know you've you've talked about performing arts and things when the pandemic was going on, and uh, you know, uh, that's what I think is great about it. You, You cover so many different topics. Yeah, the
1: NFHS actually, people don't realize sometimes, we also do speech, debate, music, theater, and academic competitions. About half of our state associations in addition to doing interscholastic athletics they also do those areas the arts so the nfhs is actually also the national leader in those areas for high schools so in fact our director of performing arts here dr james weaver is the president of the national music council which um is the is the united states uh council that represents our performing arts music interests uh internationally it's appointed by congress and we report to congress so um, we are very high profile in those areas as well. Um, so we make sure we try to reference um, the great experiences in those programs in addition to athletics.
0: Yeah, I have a theater kid too. I have a, I have a he, well, he ran cross country. He lettered all four years in in, uh, in high school and cross country, but he's a theater kid. He's now at Ashland University. He's a sophomore. And he's killing it. Um, and so, yeah, I have a very soft spot in my heart for the performing arts and and, and for theater and so uh you know that and then again that that's what attracted me you know to the emails and to into what you do because you you touch all the bases you know and then my other son's a basketball baseball player you know and so um it and, and it, they're also they're, they're so related i always say like you know when when kids are putting on a show uh you know it they're working every bit as hard as, as any sports team I've ever coached. Oh, but absolutely! They're working harder. Oh
1: honest. my gosh, Dave! I kudos to your son. And I, by the way, isn't Ashland um, the friendliest place on earth, or something? It's a great school. Yeah, it, yeah. There's there's a cute sign as I as I drive through. Um, love the, love the university. Um, but I'll tell you, you and I as athletes, we would do something on the field and not think twice, or the court. To stand up and sing in front of people? Uh-uh. <laughs> just, you know, you know, I, I, kudos to those folks. Um, you know, To perform on a stage is just brilliant, brilliant and challenging and I just, I just love it. So uh, wish your son the very best.
0: I will do it. Now, before we wrap up, I always like to try and do two things at the end. Uh, and this, I can't wait to hear your answer. I like to do what's the coolest. And the question for you is, What's the coolest place you ever played, coached, or watched a game?
1: Oh, well, I have to say as a high school basketball player um, in my sophomore year, well, we were state champs uh, for three years, and in my sophomore year, we actually had the opportunity to play in the old Boston Garden. Um, oh, the hottest and coldest place on earth. <laughs> um, so that was really cool. I was a big Celtics fan. Um, Rick Carlisle, who actually is the head coach of the Pacers now, played back then with Tiny Archibald and Larry Bird, and you know, and when we got to go into the Boston Garden and play, it was just neat. Um, so that would be my answer for that.
0: That is a good one. Now we're gonna go rapid fire here on on first things last. First things last is at this is the last thing we do but I
1: ask you a list of first, And the first thing is, what was your first job? My first job was actually giving riding lessons. Um, I grew up an equestrian. And when I was a freshman in high school, I started to give kids riding lessons, um, $5 an hour. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I worked at my dad's grocery
0: store. My dad was a product manager at a grocery store. My hey. brother and I would go in with him on Saturday. We'd work all day Saturday, 12 hours, for $5. There so you know, go. You know, yeah. better than me, hey. although I did get lunch, too. My there you go. <laughs> so all right, what was your first car?
1: Oh, um, it was, uh, people who even remember, a Datsun. Um, it was a Datsun 300-something letter after it it was a five speed and it it moved like a snail um you know little rice burner i guess kind of thing it was it was something
0: (laughs) nice nice and then last one what was your first record cassette or cd that you remember
1: buying oh it had to be i'm thinking back um it was well my parents grew us up with the beatles peter paul and mary I don't think I bought those, but I might have purchased the Bay City Rollers, um, <laughs> like in fifth grade or something. Oh, God. That's an embarrassing.
0: <laughs> Listen, mine, the
1: yeah. first album, it was Barry Manilow. I bought oh, Barry Manilow, yes. I still love Barry I'm Manilow. I
0: still love Manilow today. You know,
1: I and love I love it. it. I love it when men say they like Barry Manilow. I, oh, I, I like Barry. you, Dave. <laughs>
0: No, no, I love, I love, I've been a fan of Lo for years. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, so that's why I like, when somebody says I'm embarrassed to admit what I buy, I go, no, 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 hold on.
1: Listen, <laughs> you know, we all lay our head on the pillow at night, and if we can't do it, honestly, who is, it? Mark Twain said something about, you should always tell the truth so you never have to remember the lies you told, um, you know.
0: It, it does make life a lot easier. Sure does, that. sure does. sure. Dr. Neop, I can't thank you enough for, for spending some time with us today. You
1: were awesome. Oh, thanks, Dave. I, I hope your listeners enjoyed it. Um, let's, I would love to come back anytime. Um, just thoroughly love how you think and what you do. And to anyone out there who is a media person, thank you for everything that you do. It, it is not an easy world. And you carried us through the pandemic. You did it. And uh, I really, really appreciate what you do.
0: So if you know a coach who's doing great things, like Dr. Niehoff winning games, maybe building a great team culture at the same time, we want to hear about them. We may even ask for them to be a future guest on the podcast. You can reach out to me on Twitter at CourtsidePod1, on Facebook, and on Instagram at Courtside Culture Podcast. Remember, folks, build your players' strengths, find them all a role, and you'll take them from good to great. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Courtside Culture Podcast. And remember, build the good in your players instead of focusing on repairing the bad. Find your players a role, each and every one of them, and take them from good to great. We'll see you next time.